0: Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have another mailbag episode. We're fortunate enough to occasionally receive some very kind emails from listeners, and often we receive a couple of questions as well. This is going to be part of a series of episodes dedicated to answering those questions, and in each one, there's going to be a little bit of thematic overlap between the questions that we explore. If you would like to submit a question to be answered on a future episode of the podcast, you can send it to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. I'll also include a link to the contact form on our website in the description of today's episode. So today, the two questions that we're going to be answering explore hanging on to things, and particularly hanging on to things that give us some enjoyment, but you know, maybe we're hanging on to them a little bit too long. So to help us with answering those questions, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. How you doing? I'm good, and I'm really personally interested in these topics. Yeah, we yeah. received some really great questions around yeah. this. Recently, we've had a series of episodes that have been focused on different psychological tendencies, including negative tendencies like anxiety and OCD. I want to start with a question we received related to a specific disorder, which is hoarding. This person writes, I was hoping that you could do a discussion on hoarding. I'm a low-level hoarder, and I continue to struggle with making decisions about keeping or letting go of stuff. I've heard hoarding discussed as a form of OCD, or a symptom of depression, or too much anxious preoccupation with imagined future needs. How much of the problem is dysfunctional psychology, and how much of it is a matter of organizing habits? I've been able to find resources to help with my anxiety, but I've had a hard time finding books or advice that help with hoarding hoping you could provide some insight. So I want to get right over to you, Rick, because I know you've been thinking about this, but I'd like to offer maybe a little context just right off the top. The questioner is probably struggling to find good material related to addressing hoarding in part because finding good material on this subject is a bit of a struggle, which is not because people haven't been interested in it, but because it's kind of challenging to separate the tendency for hoarding into its own box distinct from a kind of symptom of something like OCD. It's actually only recently been started to be studied on its own, and its causes are fairly unclear. It was defined as a mental disorder only in 2013, and it's considered both a disorder on its own and a possible symptom of some other disorder, like, as I said before, OCD, ADHD, or depression. So it's a big tangled web and it's a tricky topic to kind of unpack. I think you're
1: completely right. I've had a little bit of experience clinically with people who hoard. And I've also been in situations in I would say my broad extended family system in which I, I walked into a relative's bedroom mm. and I was just flabbergasted at the piles of newspapers that he, I can say, he had accumulated. Mm. over the years and an intelligent guy and he thought he would read those papers someday and we're talking about papers that were 20 years old Mm. and so that's when the hairs go up on the back of your neck and you think to yourself this is not really normal so that's the territory here to kind of call out on the other hand if you think about it too hoarding to put it a certain kind of way is a first world problem in other mm. words or to more broadly say it's a post agricultural problem in other words mm. hunter gatherers can't hoard because whatever they've got they've got to carry around with them from place to place to place so and also people have different preferences some people want to get rid of stuff other people they really like to keep those sentimental objects or they they like knowing that they've got that particular funny shaped screwdriver in the garage in case sometime in the next 10 years, they really want to use that thing. And, you know, what's the problem? So it goes to the fundamental definition that you're familiar with as to what constitutes so-called psychopathology
0: Mm.
1: in the culture in which it's situated. Because what psychopathology, let's say for a hunter-gatherer, is not psychopathology for let's say someone who's relatively affluent in a developed country if you're affluent in a developed country, maybe it's appropriate to just throw stuff away because you think you know if I need that thing again it's less than a hundred dollars, maybe less than twenty dollars i'll buy it in five years if I really need it but if you 're a hunter gatherer and you throw away that tool you 're not going to have a chance to go down to Walmart and pick it up again in a mm-hmm. few years, so that would be pathological there to throw it away, but in maybe a Affluent country, it would be pathological to hold on to it. So it's situate. That said, the essence of it is, number one, does it cause distress? Significant distress. Does it really bother you? And or two, does it disrupt social or occupational functioning? So that's the definition of psychopathology, essentially. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes sense. All that said, let's suppose then that a person has just a lot of stuff that is not well organized, it's cluttering up the space, it's creating conflicts with other people, say, and it weighs on the mind of the person who's accumulating all that stuff. So now let's say, okay, we're in that territory Mm -hmm. here. It's not just a question of personal preference. There's a real issue here. And
0: under those circumstances, what can somebody do to work inside of that tendency? So getting at
1: the thing you said really astutely at the beginning, it's not entirely clear in terms of the research, what the causes are. Mm -hmm. And diagnosis drives treatment. That's a classic saying for medicine. So if the real issue is we've got a screw problem, we're not gonna solve it with the world's best hammer. Okay, so one issue is for, I think some people, the hoarding so-called or the accumulation of clutter is not based on a primary desire to pile up possessions Mm -hmm. for various reasons, the real breakdown is around the executive functions. Mm -hmm. This is someone who's just has a hard time mobilizing skillful, sustained action, say. So they procrastinate day after day after day. They don't process the objects that are coming into their life every day. And so they accumulate over time. So the real breakdown is around executive function. And there, I think what a person could simply do is to say, look, if that's really my issue, I'm gonna operate based on, let's say, two rules. Rule number one, I'm not gonna accumulate anything new, including tasks. Certainly, I'm not gonna accumulate any new objects or obligations until I've cleared away an equivalent amount of objects, tasks, or obligations. Yeah. In other words, I'm not going to bring anything new in unless I've cleared a space for it mm-hmm. from the get-go. That's a rule number one. So I'm not going to add to the net pile. It's not going to be growing any longer. And two, I'm going to commit to spending a reasonable amount of time every week, spread out over the days of the week, to move my stuff downstream. And maybe I'm going to bang away at it at the level of 60 minutes a week spread across the seven days. Maybe I'm going to give it half an hour a day where I just am working through my backlog of paperwork. I'm working through my backlog in the garage or the closet. And that's what I'm just going to do. And I'm going to bang away at it. That itself seems like such a simple solution, but I think it's really effective. If the issue is in more of the executive functions, mm-hmm. the will, the agency, and so forth, then sometimes you need to bring in a frankly, someone to just do it with you or to kind of literally, I've known people who would say, let's say to another person, just sit in the room, read a book for the half hour, then I'm going to be puttering around in a closet. But if I know that you're going to be in the room for the half hour every day, I'm going to Mm -hmm. be working my way through this backlog of stuff in my closet. I'm going to do it then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As just a little organizing idea, as a comment on that first one of if you acquire something new, try to get rid of an equivalent Mm -hmm. number of things. Great idea as a basic operating procedure. I would just give one little piece of advice with regards to that. Get rid of the thing first. So a lot of the time I see people do something where, and again, this is the kind of the epitome of a first world problem in the way that I'm naming it right now, but they'll go shopping or something. Mm. And they'll say, oh, you know, I have plenty of shirts, but I really like this shirt. So I'm going to get this shirt and then I'll donate another shirt to the Goodwill or something like that. And they get the shirt and it goes in their closet and lo and behold, the other shirt never gets donated to the Goodwill. It just hangs what there endlessly. You know, what a surprise. <laughs> so what I would just say is that if, again, to your point, if the problem is about executive control, mm. then you can really get on your own side by going through the elimination phase first before you go into an additive phase. Yeah, that's really yeah. what I meant. You mm-hmm. know, And saying that, A way
1: also into it that's kind of a deep way to look at this is to think about, to adapt something from, let's say, Hinduism. In that frame, nature is understood, or you could even say the divine, the transcendental, if there is such a thing, is understood in terms of three qualities, creating, preserving, and destroying. Destroying, equaling equaling as well letting go complete or completing right so create preserve complete and you could argue that in western cultures maybe especially american culture we don't really like to face i'm going to put it a certain way we don't really like to face this aspect of god the ending of it all or the mm-hmm. ending of the universe that things complete the bodies come to an end the people die you know and in other parts of the world, death is much more prominent. Mm. Uh, hunter-gatherer cultures are read once that typical hunter-gatherer band, the survival rate to age six of newborns is about one in six, roughly five out of six kids. So that means that parents will routinely have to go through the process of their precious child dying. So loss and ending is it's really prominent in the lives of many people throughout history. But in many ways, I think we could be insulated from it. So This could seem, this could be a way too airy fairy way of framing the need for letting go. But to me, to understand that the universe, even the divine, operates in these three major ways creating, preserving, destroying, and destroying is an aspect of this profound process, is for me a way of framing all this. So now I want to talk about a different source of the psychopathology. So I'm moving on from a breakdown of the executive functions Mm -hmm. to what are the functions that are served by the piling up of possessions? You see the distinction here. So in the first case, the breakdown of executive functions, this is someone who can't process the hoarding because there's not a facilitating factor present in their mind. But it's not that they like having all that crud itself. Then you have a situation where a person feels compelled in an OCD-ish kind of way to have crud, or there are related underlying roots of that psychopathology, like a feeling that if I somehow don't have all that stuff, I will disappear as a being. It is my stuff that instantiates me, that somehow Mm. constitutes me into existence. There is that beautiful, beautiful touching moment with Mr. Rogers, when he received an Emmy, they had a lifetime award before he passed away, and he said to everybody in the room, we're all here because somebody loved us into being. And we're going to take 10 seconds to think about one of those people who loved you into being, to be now in this room at the peak of television industry stardom. And in some ways, I think there are people who feel that their objects love them into being. Mm.
0: Their objects
1: call them into being. And and there's this panic almost that if I don't have all those clothes in my closet, or I don't have all that stuff in the drawer, or that pile of papers that I'm gonna someday read, that somehow I will be wispier, more foam-like, and will no longer really exist here. And so there are different kind of reasons for hoarding, including that kind. And so I think that with regard to that, paradoxically, it really, really helps to keep bringing awareness into the present moment and to recognize that you're actually okay right now. You don't need to pile up those possessions. We have this primal existential fear of no longer being because we know deep down in the architecture of the nervous system that our sense of being is being constructed. It's being made up continuously. And we're always just afraid that in the next breath, the movie's going to stop way down deep. So we want to make sure the movie keeps going and we want to be really reassured the movie's going to keep going. So it really helps to appreciate that you're still here. As long as you're here, you really are here. You don't need all that stuff in your living room to still be here. You're going to be okay without it. To do what you and I wrote about in our book, Resilient, in the framework of the HEAL process, the linking of registering the positive experience of being okay, you're going on being with the image of one box after another, that clutter leaving your home, one Mm. shirt, one sweater, one dress after another, that stuff leaving your closet, linking the feeling of that going away with the ongoing you know, felt sense of you're still here, I will still be here, I'm still okay is is I think a really powerful way to work
0: with this. I think that's some great advice, and it really addresses both of the sides of the uh, possible hoarding question, whether it be simply a matter of kind of executive organizational control or it be really something else that exists as a fear inside of the mind that the hoarding is existing in response to so. Moving on from hoarding, we had another interesting question that has kind of a built-in part one and part two. So I will poise these to you as two separate questions to be answered. I think they're both interesting. And the question is, a central tenant of your path to wellness seems to be have and sustain positive feelings. Do you think that chemically induced positive feelings have the same effect as natural ones? For instance, I'm taking a break from caffeine for a few weeks, and I'm anticipating that first cup of coffee will cause some serious good vibes. Can I capitalize on that to really savor those feelings and try to internalize them? Or does the chemically induced aspect somehow counteract things or make them less powerful? That's great. Great question. So I want to
1: back my way into it with a little bit of soft correction here. So Mm. And I understand why someone would maybe read a little thing I wrote or listen to a brief clip from me in a in a talk and think, "Oh, okay, Rick's about smell the roses right if you're you know look for those opportunities to be grateful to have good experiences, and when they happen, take them in That's great and that's a legitimate way I think of uh thinking about what I teach, but for me, it's much deeper and broader than that. Mm. And there are three things I'd like to say about that. First, one of the main reasons to value positive experiences is that they are the major means to the end of growing psychological resources inside yourself. And the primary pathway to growing resources like compassion, grit, happiness, skillfulness with others, and so forth, is to first, experience those resources. And second, slow your brain down so, it can turn those experiences, those passing states, into lasting changes of neural structure and function. And in other words, hardwiring traits into your own nervous system. So, for me, positive experiences in that case are not an end in themselves. They're only a means to the end, especially in the sense that most experiences of psychological resources have a positive quality to them. Mm. Occasionally, there's psychological resources that we're only going to gain through really painful, difficult experiences, such as the knowledge that you can live through it and you'll still be here. But most resources are positively valenced because Mother Nature evolved systems that marked those experiences and motivated us toward them because they were on mission for Mm -hmm. passing on genes that passed on genes. First point. Second point, a second reason, really. So I'm talking about reasons for having and sustaining positive experiences. Second major reason isn't so much about developing resources per se, it's about helping the soft, scared, furry little animal of your body feel that its needs are met enough in the moment so that the primal machinery of craving and stressing and fighting and fleeing and feuding and freezing can fall away increasingly over time as you draw into yourself the felt sense of needs sufficiently met in the moment through experiencing that they're met in the moment, which Mm -hmm. is a positive experience. And we can use positive experiences as a way to feel safe enough and satisfied enough and connected enough. So that's the second major reason. Now, when we're having an experience induced by, let's say, caffeine alertness Mm -hmm. or adderall psychostimulant um, helping us stay really kind of focused a little revved up or maybe we're having an experience through other physiological means that that don't involve you know a prescription medication like the endorphin high after a real good workout bottom line once the brain is having a state Mm -hmm. of some kind that's the underpinnings of an experience it doesn't really matter to the brain what the cause was generally speaking So if you are feeling alert with your morning coffee and you want to deepen trait alertness, it's okay to focus on that experience of alertness after you drink your cup of coffee and a sense of, let's say, even optimism or confidence. I would laugh with my wife. We would sometimes go get a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, and she would laugh with me and say, man, I feel so ambitious after that first (laughs) cup of coffee. And then the motivation falls off. Well... If you want to build up trade ambition and that double latte espresso with an extra shot is getting you going, well, that's an opportunity. Why not? Why not be opportunistic there? All that said though, and this goes back to the hoarding thing, what's our relationship with these experiences? Mm. And that's a very, very, very important thing. If you look at that pile of papers in your living room, say, and it makes you happy and you're really glad you have that because it reassures you that someday you're going to be able to read it and you like that idea. Okay. On the other hand, if that experience of seeing that pile of newspapers or that experience of getting jacked up on your morning you know, cup of coffee is stressful or tinged with attachment, then you're more in trouble. Then that's problematic for you. So stepping back from all this, mm-hmm. whether it's that pile of papers in your living room, or that bottle of Adderall, Mm -hmm. or six-pack of Budweiser. The key question for me is twofold. One, is it skillful means? Is it skillful means to have a cup of coffee in the morning, or to take some Ritalin, or Zoloft? Is it skillful means to have a few piles of books you want to get to someday, and hope you will get to someday? Is that skillful means or not? That's a key question. And then the second question is, even if it is skillful means, even if it's not crazy to have that pile of books you want to read someday, or it's not crazy to take that Adderall or to have a couple beers, maybe for you, that really is skillful means. Then the question is, what's your relationship to the experience that the skillful means afford you? Mm. Are you clinging to that experience? Are you ashamed of that experience? Are you deluded about the experience, thinking that somehow it'll be endlessly satisfying when actually it's transient, momentarily pleasant, and then you're hungover the next day? What's your relationship to that experience? So those are the two key questions, I think, that govern everything. And I think I've been in this world a while, this world of self-help, and people can get really righteous about their particular means. Like, for example, they're really righteous about doing meditation and, oh my God, taking antidepressants, is bad. Well, really? Not necessarily. So I'm very pragmatic. These are skillful means that induce certain experiences in Mm -hmm. us. They also help us manage our circumstances, a lot of the benefit of which is to induce experiences in us or enable experiences in us. So a lot, the bottom line currency is quality of life. What are the experiences Mm -hmm. that our skillful means are leading to? And I'm really pragmatic about that. Then the question, though, endlessly is, can you receive into yourself intimately
0: the benefit of the experiences without getting attached to it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I think that the underlying thing that you're pointing to, which is that once a good experience happens, your brain can't really distinguish between the source of the good experience. So it's equally valuable, whether it's pharmaceutically inclined or not, when it comes to taking it into yourself, assuming that the pharmaceutical itself isn't interrupting the process by which your brain is capable of doing that, which does happen in some cases. And it's important to be aware of that. For sure. I want to share the second part of the question that was asked here, which you've largely answered already, but there was one element of it that I thought was really interesting. So I'd like to get to it. So the second part of that question was, similarly, I take Adderall from time to time, and it usually turns me into a pretty happy person for a few hours. Do you think there's lasting therapeutic benefit to those kinds of artificial happiness? Or does meddling with neurotransmitter systems do more harm than good in that case? You've responded to that a little bit, but maybe not so much the more harm than good question, which I would imagine is probably a pretty open one. And then finally, what I found kind of interesting was this question. Could mindfulness combined with pharmaceuticals be more powerful than either on their own?
1: These are classic questions, and there's some debates about them, frankly. So mm-hmm. try to I'll try to be really brief here. First, there's a term called state-dependent learning. And one of the classic examples of it is college students using amphetamines, essentially, to stay up all night and study. And then they go in and take the test. But the, since they're no longer on the amphetamines, they can't remember anything. It was state-dependent learning. And I think that shows up under a lot of conditions, not just Adderall. Think about workshops. People go on these workshops or they go to, on vacation to Hawaii and they have some kind of state. And in the state, they promise all these things to themselves or other people, or they realize all kinds of stuff, but then they come back to their normal life and it's state dependent. They yeah, didn't. I
0: think that's a huge point. Yeah. And it's not just
1: around drugs. So it's a more general thing. Mm-hmm. What transfers? That's a key question. Or more generally, what generalizes? That's a really useful thing from the specific to the general. All right. So with regard to psychostimulants, I'm not a psychiatrist. I try to be a little attentive about professional boundaries. I'm a psychologist. And so I would refer to people who have a lot of experience with meds and research about meds mm-hmm. and so forth. If a person is experiencing greater mental clarity and focus and steadiness of mind through the use of a psycho stimulant, mm-hmm. like Adderall or Ritalin, say. And if that improved mental clarity and steadiness of mind and impulse control enables a person to have beneficial psychosocial learning, in other words, to to gain from the therapy or to be able to explore meditation without feeling unbelievably jumpy 90 seconds in during the silence, well, then maybe it's skillful means. Mm -hmm. Then it's helpful. And the states that are facilitated by that skillful means, then become the basis for traits that actually sink in. If that is happening, great. On the other hand, maybe it's not happening. Maybe what's occurring is that during the particular practice, let's say the four to six hours that the Adderall is effective, unless it's some kind of time-release product, or during the weekend workshop or the 30 minutes of meditation you're doing, If what's happening there, wonderful as it is, is not sticking to your ribs and making you a wiser, stronger, kinder, happier person, well, then it has limited impact. And this territory, more generally to finish here, of the integration of psychotropic medication or more broadly, low-dose psychedelics, Mm -hmm. people who are microdosing psilocybin or or macrodosing it, And how do you integrate that with a spiritual practice? And I think my own view about it, I guess, is really pragmatic. I don't mind saying that I myself have had really powerful and useful experiences that stayed with me from different kinds of non-ordinary consciousness experiences, including with psychedelics. On the other hand, I've had a lot of experiences in that territory that were merely entertaining or unpleasant, and they had no lasting impact. Mm. And so I think that's always the key question. What's the lasting impact? And the other question is, could the gains have been achieved through other means Mm. that were better in some way? And I think sometimes in our culture, kind of is thematic really with hoarding and with meds, we look for the quick fix. And sometimes a quick fix is, a, is good. It's a quick fix. It takes care of your problem. It's good. On the other hand, I'm kind of old school and I tend to be reflexively skeptical of the quick fix and more, I guess, biased toward the long slog of day-to-day practice, the day-to-day healing of the heart, the day-to-day releasing of the stones you're carrying
0: around. Yeah, I think that's a great point and a really good summary of a lot of different ideas. As a kind of final put-a-bow-on-it thought, one thing that I will say is that this area of the combination of mindfulness and pharmaceuticals of various kinds is one that is currently very, very ripe with investigation. A lot of people are reflecting on and attempting to answer this question in a variety of different ways. So that's the time that we have today for this mailbag episode. We explored two separate questions. Both of them really ultimately related back to our relationship with different kinds of positive experiences. We started with a question related to hoarding, which is this idea of holding on to things that make you happy on one level or another, or which provide a certain kind of maybe existential safety to you. Just the fact that that thing goes on continuing around you. We explored the two different ways that an issue with hoarding might manifest, the first being due to a lack of kind of top-down control, and the second due to a linkage in the mind on some level between the possession of these things and our own happiness. There's some overlap between these two things, and the line between them's a little bit fuzzy, which is part of the reason that it's a bit unclear in the research whether hoarding is its own individual problem or whether it's simply a symptom of some other issue like OCD or ADHD or broader problems with anxiety and depression. Rick offered some suggestions to people who might be struggling this, ways that they could either improve their top-down control or potentially start to decouple that psychological relationship with ownership and pleasure. We then went into a question which asked whether stimulants of various kinds, whether caffeine or Ritalin or Adderall or whatever else, could be a good source of the kinds of positive experiences that we need to create new neural structures. You began by offering a little bit of a clarification around your work and the linkage between just kind of having more positive experiences down to the deeper focus on really building strengths over time. It's a big and nuanced question, but the relatively general takeaway we gain from it is that pleasurable states are often basically good. The question is, what are we really retaining from that pleasurable state? Is it being included as a kind of long-term learning inside of us in general? Or is it just something that's kind of fun for the minute? And bridging the gap between those two things is a really important step for all of us to take when kind of analyzing our behavior and our actions. So that's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would leave a rating and subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, it really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.